Rick, would you be willing to open us in prayer, please? Thank you. Uh, before I get into the, the study, we're going to hopefully finish up John chapter 8 today. That's a, a goal, but I'm not confident enough I'll make it to 9 that I've actually put 9 up there. Uh, I was asked to announce that there's six parking spaces kind of in the northeast corner of this that we're contractually obligated to leave open on game days uh, for you know, people that are associated with these businesses so that they can get to the stadium. And I actually had to move my car because I was parked in one of those when I found out about that. So if you are parked in one of those, if you could uh, you move your car so that you know, we're, we're good neighbors to the businesses here, that would be appreciated. Um, so it's been a couple of weeks. We're going to go ahead and get back into John chapter 8. As I said, I'm, I'm hoping that we can finish John 8, but we'll, we'll see. It, it, it's kind of borderline whether we can quite get there. John 7 and 8 are really kind of a singular unit. Uh, Jesus is in uh, Jerusalem for the, the Feast of Tabernacles, and it's his kind of last major kind of pu public uh, pronouncement of, of who he is. And he's able to generate some belief, but it's inadequate belief. And when he probes that, he gets more and more rejection. And that, um, it, it's kind of important to remember as we look at this that, you know, 15 verses previously, roughly, this is a group that was identified as believing in him. And when Jesus said, you don't simply need to believe in me in the way that you believe in me, you need me, and you need to, to see that need. Uh, that's effectively what Jesus was communicating. The responses grew more and more self-righteous and more and more hostile. So let me go ahead and read the section that we're looking at, but it's kind of important to keep the, the flow of John you know, in our minds as we look at that. Um, we're going to really start in verse 39, but I want to start at reading at verse 37 just for some context. <clears throat> I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would do the works Abraham did. Now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. They said to him, We were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God and I'm here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is the liar, or for, sorry, he is a liar and the father of lies. Because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell you the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. 
The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. <clears throat> so, we, we looked last time, and this was two weeks ago, about the, the idea of sonship in the first century, and there's some kind of important distinctions that, that are worth keeping in mind. Uh, the, the word had a much more functional sense uh, in, in the first century than it does today. And the, the crowd does seem to be thinking in the modern kind of paternal sense of the word. They're, they're thinking they're physical descendants of Abraham. And that automatically puts um, them you know, towards the top of God's good list. But Jesus is using sonship in the functional sense. If they are indeed Abraham's sons, they should be doing the same sorts of things that Abraham did. If they were Abraham's sons, they would have learned what Abraham did from Abraham, and they would be doing the same things. Abraham believed God's word when it came to him. The crowd is rejecting God's word that's spoken by Jesus. Abraham rejoiced uh, that God would one day send a promised deliverer. When that deliverer arrives in Jerusalem, the crowd wants to kill him. So God sees Jesus, and God loves Jesus. The crowd sees Jesus and wants to kill him. Functionally, they're not acting at all like those that they claim as their father in this section. Instead, they're doing the same sorts of things that Satan does, and Jesus is going to point that out very bluntly in, in verse 44. So, with all this background, you know, what, what Jesus says in verse 44, you, know, you are of your father the devil, and your will is to do his desires, that's unbelievably harsh. Um, and remember, they were, he's saying this to a group that you know, just 20 verses previously, or 15 or something, had you know, claimed to believe in him. Um, so why, why is Jesus being so harsh there? And I, I think that the important thing to keep in mind is that what Jesus is dealing with with this crowd is a group that's very firmly confident in their ability to stand before God based on their heredity and based on their works. And Jesus is trying to show them that their actions are inconsistent with what they believe. Their actions, in fact, prove that they're not Abraham's sons in any important sense, at least in the spiritual sense. And the, the works that they're doing show that, um, that they would point to to show their right standing before God actually show a very different alignment. The, uh, specifically, they align with what Satan does. Another question that kind of comes up in, in this section that you might you know, ask yourself is where does uh, sola fide fit in, in with this? Doesn't it sound like Jesus is saying that you know, their works sh show that they're unbelievers? And yes, I think that, that really is what Jesus is saying. But of course, you know, anyone that has taken the time to, to look through the Reformed understanding carefully knows that genuine belief always produces genuine works, and inadequate faith doesn't. So what Jesus is showing is that he's trying to show a very religious group. They believe God's word. You know, they exert considerable effort to try to keep the law on, on their own power. And they believe in Jesus in some sort of substantial capacity in, in this section. Jesus is trying to show that that faith is defective and that they're not believing the heart of the gospel. They're depending on their heritage and their works to stand before God. They're not relying on the righteousness that God gives through Jesus that uh, can only be found in Him. So, uh, that, that I think is uh, you, where, where Sully Fide would be in this section. 
Now, we, we certainly see a sharp contrast between the devil, and the devil's character is to lie about Jesus, and, the, and Jesus, who only speaks the truth. Um, Jesus emphasizes that in this section by, by way of contrast. We see that same idea in 1 John, and you'll, you'll notice the they, they sound similar because they, they are written by the same person despite what you might see in a lot of uh, modern seminaries. Let me go ahead and read your First John 2.21. I write to you not because you do not… And just for some background on First John, First John is written to a group of Christians probably kind of late in the first century A.D. that are struggling a lot of members of their church have left. These were presumably uh, people that appeared to be strong Christians. They had been part of this community for a while, and they've decisively abandoned the faith. And uh, John is kind of writing about this specific group that had left uh, authentic faith uh, to the church. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you, do, you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and the Father. So, you know, I think that what we, we, we see here makes it clear you know, um, that there's this, uh, something fundamental to how Satan lies um, in that he seeks to lie about Jesus Christ. Uh, he will lie about his identity. He'll lie about his goodness, his willingness and ability to save. Any lie that will keep one to, from coming to Jesus for salvation. Uh, verse 47, which I, I have up there next, kind of sounds like a catch-22. Um, you know, is it? You know, um, so, I, I think it is. They need to be of God in order to hear the words of God, and they need the words of God to be of God. Um, so, if it's a catch-22, if you, you kind of need both conditions to have either condition, uh, why does Jesus bother to say it in the first place? And I think the, the answer to that is that God uses means to overcome the hardness of the human heart. You know, God could just simple, supernaturally regenerate in, individuals with no means involved. God's capable of doing that, but that's not how God normally operates. Uh, God normally works through means, and that would be what Jesus is doing. He's pointing out uh, what they need, showing them the, the need uh, with the idea that they should go to God to get what they need from Him. Um, and remember, Jesus is dealing with uh, self-righteous in- individuals, that, and he, he's v- very much hoping to um, knock them out of this false sense of security that they're in uh, to show them the need that they have. So and I know that this is an idea that we keep coming back to, but it's uh, an important one. It keeps coming up in John because it keeps people from embracing Christ in the sense that they fail to see their real and their very significant desperate need for Him. They confidently believe that um, they are of God already and that they're already in a right position um, to evaluate Jesus when, in fact, they don't know God in the first place and they can't rightly evaluate Jesus' claims. So, 
I know that this might feel a little bit uh, incomplete, but we did look at this section uh, two weeks ago, and I didn't want to uh, review things too much. The next section that we come to uh, starts in verse 48, and, and we'll, we'll look at kind of a, a big chunk here. The Jews answered him, are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Yet, I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, If anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham, who died? And the prophets died. Uh, who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet fifty years old, and you have seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. So there, there's a lot in this section, and it opens with a particularly gross and ugly insult to Jesus. Um, you know, th this is something that probably does not have uh, an equivalent that, that I could say in English, and if it did, I probably wouldn't be able to bring myself to say it. Um, the, uh, the difference is that racism today is something that is not tolerated. It's assumed to be wrong for good reason. In the first century, that idea did not exist. Um, you know, every culture was racist against various other cultures, and that was just assumed to be the way the world was. And the, the worst race that you could be a part of in, from the perspective of first century Jews was Samaritan. Um, so that is a rather gross and ugly insult right there. The, the demon possession, it, it might... Um, it might be on the side of simply saying that he's crazy. It might be really saying that he's under the control of Satan, but it's um, you know, a, a very substantial insult. So the, the point is really clear. Um, this is an ugly and slanderous statement that, about as ugly and slanderous a statement as could be made. Um, in a modern argument, the, the best that I could kind of think of to what they're saying would be you know, an argument reaches the point where somebody says, you are literally Adolf Hitler. Um, and that, that generally happens when the person that's saying that has run out of any way of supporting the conclusion that they're trying to argue for. <laughs> um, and, and Jesus has effectively shown the crowd you know, uh, not to have a defensible position. They're, they're out of straws, and so they're just going to an, a rather ugly insult. Jesus' response is a, a very significant contrast to that. It, it's calm, it's rational. He's honoring God. He has been honoring God the entire time, 
But the crowd, by dishonoring him for honoring God, is demonstrating exactly what Jesus has been saying the entire time. Um, that he's, they're demonstrating their true attitude towards God. Any reasonable third-party observer that was kind of looking at this back-and-forth exchange would see Jesus kind of clearly having the, won the debate at this stage. Uh, and it's kind of ironic that while they're questioning Jesus' sanity, the, uh, the crowd is irrationally continuing to demonstrate this irrational behavior um, by persisting in a position that they can't defend. So, when we get to verse 50, I, I think that there is a warning in, in that. Jesus, right now, is mercifully submitting to the abuse of this crowd. But one cannot slander God the way that this crowd has just slandered God indefinitely. Um, there is one who does seek God's, Jesus' glory. That same person will ultimately judge everything with perfect justice. Either they will stand by themselves and accept a fair and just reward for their every thought, word, and deed, or they will be found united to Jesus, covered in his perfect righteousness and presenting his perfect record and accomplishments um, before that judge in place of their uh, lack of righteousness and lack of accomplishments to, you know, uh, if, if they're going to enjoy God's eternal presence. But there's comfort for us in these verses. If Jesus uh, perfectly taught what he learned from God and then faced slander and persecution for it, we, we can expect the same. The comfort that, that I alluded to is knowing that we're on the right side of history, if I were to kind of put it in the, the modern way of speaking. We can expect similar treatment when we speak the truth of Jesus. Um, the world is going to hate to hear that truth. It will suppress that truth in unrighteousness. We will face persecution in various forms to the extent that we uh, proclaim that truth and live that truth. But when we do face that, we can take comfort in knowing that Jesus faced similar persecution and we can expect to be ultimately vindicated to whatever extent we stand up for that truth. Um, the statement that we see in verse 51 is very similar to verse 31, and so I think it's kind of constructive to look at these side by side. Verse 31, Jesus says, So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. The statement comes up again in 51. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never uh, see death. So th there, there's very similar things being, being said, but the differences are important. I think 51 really is an amplification of, of 31. So... Um, if you kind of think back to the bread of life discourse, we kind of see a, a similar level of amplification. In John 6.35, I'm not going to put these up, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And that provokes kind of an increasingly hostile response from the crowd. The crowd is realizing that Jesus is saying that they need something more than works, and they need something more than physical descent from Abraham. They need him and they're not having it. And so Jesus comes back, says the same thing, but in more pointed language. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that you may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. And that is still rejected in increasingly hostile terms from the crowd. 
And so you can hear Jesus bring this up the same point a third time in yet stronger uh, terms. He, he, he takes the same thing and he says it in more and more offensive language. And you'll, you'll hear that in uh, 6.53 through 55. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in him, and, or abides in me, and I in him. And so the, the statements are basically saying the same thing, but in increasingly strong language. And Jesus is doing the same thing here in verse 51. He's coming back to the idea that the crowds found offensive, and he's saying it again in, uh, in a more pointed way. So the, the changes, you know, Jesus is adding the formula, truly, truly, I say to you. And we, uh, of course, recognize that as a way of kind of emphasizing the importance of what he's about to say. You know, your ears should pick up when, when Jesus adds uh, that formula to the beginning of a statement. Um, abiding and keeping, I, th I think, seem to be pointing to, to more or less the same reality. But the intensification is the consequence. First, uh, Jesus points to um, knowing the truth and being set free by the truth, but now Jesus is teaching that his father, followers will never see death. Um, obviously, that doesn't apply to physical death, and J.C. Ryle, I think, had a really nice summary of why that, that can't be that I'm going to go ahead and summarize. The, the first point that Ryle made is that he shall be complete, he, and he, uh, Ryle is using he as uh, to represent the follower of Jesus. He shall be completely delivered uh, from that spiritual death of condemnation under which all mankind are born. His soul is alive and can die no more. Um, he, the believer, shall be delivered from the sting of bodily death. His flesh and bones may sink under disease and be laid in the grave, but the worst part of death shall not be able to touch him. The grave shall have him one day. Um, or sorry, the grave shall give him up one day. And finally, he, the believer, uh, will be delivered entirely from the second death, even eternal punishment in hell. Over him, the second death shall have no power. And so that's what I think Jesus is, is saying. In verse 51, um, Jesus says, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. And the, the crowd's objection, I think, is a very understandable one. They're, they're seeing this in more literal terms than what Christ is saying, but it, it, it's straightforward. They saw Jesus as making a promise that's far greater than anything that was accomplished by Abraham or any of the prophets. And to that extent, they were entirely right. Um, they're asking that as a rhetorical question. To them, it, the answer is kind of assumed to be no. Um, they're, they're saying, is it, are you greater than Abraham? Um, with the assumption that the answer is, is no. And ironically, of course, Jesus is far greater uh, than, than Abraham, but I don't think the crowd is, is realizing that at this point. So to what extent is the crowd's objection reasonable or unreasonable? Um, now, it, at first glance, it does seem quite reasonable. Jesus is making a very grand claim. Um, and the, you know, a, a claim like that should be questioned and, and should be justified. And so uh, 
Jesus does have a response for that. And as we're kind of seeing in this section, it's dense. It takes a little bit of time to pack. So there's, there's four points that uh, Jesus raises. The first point that Jesus raises is that his glory is not from himself, but the glory comes from the Father. The second point that Jesus moves on to is that the crowd claims that, uh, that God is their God, but they actually don't know God. The third point that Jesus makes is that Jesus, unlike the crowd, does know God. And finally, he concludes that Abraham rejoiced to see Jesus' day. And in some sense, Abraham saw it. We'll come back to that. Um, but before we do that, let's sort of think back to Abraham. Uh, how did he respond to God? And a, a sermon series by Boyce, I think Boyce did a really good job of kind of summarizing this. There's three ways that Abraham responded to God. First, Abraham put God's calling above earthly honors. Abraham believed God in spite of circumstances, and Abraham placed his ultimate hope in the coming of Christ. And so let's take a look at and see how the crowd compares. They're placing their, their own honor above following Christ. We see that in the religious leaders. They're jealous of Jesus' popularity, and that, jealous is very, that jealousy is very apparent in their response. We see that in those that believed in Jesus in, in some extent, although in an inadequate way, but then they're afraid of being removed from the synagogue, and they won't stand up to Jesus. Uh, they won't stand up for Jesus for that reason. Um, across the gospel, we, uh, they, they can't see the perceived, or they can't see past the, this perceived need for deliverance from Rome. You know, a Savior who will deal with their sin isn't really of interest to them. They're entirely concerned with things of this world, and they're uninterested in, in spiritual reality, and that's exactly the opposite of Abraham. Abraham wasn't concerned with his situation. He lived in tents his whole life. Um, you know, he, he wasn't concerned with you know, having everything that was promised to him then. He w was content to rely on, on God to keep his promises at some point. But the, the crowd is not going to be content with that. They won't be content unless Jesus delivers them from the Romans. They won't accept something that they see as lesser, like deliverance from sin. And finally, the crowd is placing their ultimate hope in themselves. They're placing their hope in their physical descent from Abraham. And if you kind of read between the lines, they're uh, placing their standing with God in their kind of par sort of partial obedience to the law. God is standing right in front of them, promising that anyone who keeps his word will never see death, but they want to rely on their own works uh, as a means to please God. So very different from Abraham. What does Jesus mean when he says that Abraham rejoiced to see his day? So we, we, we saw that before, and I think that the specifics of it are difficult, um, but the, the specifics also don't matter all that much. Um, there's a lot of controversy if you read through the commentaries, and I don't think I found two commentaries that quite reached the same conclusion. Um, that one possibility is there, there's a specific instance where visitors come to Abraham, and a lot of people, I think, correctly believe that that's a pre-incarnate theophany. It's a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. Um, 
there's um, a vision that's recorded, you know, in non-canonical writings that, uh, you know, um, that uh, talks about, you know, an event where God kind of, uh, you know, appears to Abraham and reveals more specifics about his, his plan for salvation. Um, that, that, that is a possibility. It could be that Jesus is referring to Abraham's response of uh, learning more about God's plan in heaven, uh, where Jesus certainly would have saw, seen Abraham as well. But, you know, I, it, in, um, I think in, in one sense, Abraham saw Jesus' day when, you know, Isaac was spared and when God provided a ram in Isaac's place. Now, personally, I, I would probably lean towards uh, the promises that God made to Abraham throughout his life that point to what God was going to do, that God was going to send a deliverer to the nation that Abraham was going to become the father of. Um, but I really don't think that question is very important in understanding Jesus' meaning. It really could be any of those. It could be all of those. Um, what, what is important, though, is Abraham's uh, response. Abraham rejoiced. Uh, Abraham might not have, have seen who Jesus would be in detail, but he saw that God would provide a Savior, and Abraham believed that promise. And it was that faith that looked forward to Jesus that God credited to Abraham as righteousness. And Abraham may have only had a dim vision of what God would do specifically, but it was enough that whatever he, he saw, he rejoiced and he looked forward to. And he, he placed his trust in those promises and not on anything around him in the world. And that should convict us. We don't just have kind of vague promises of something that God will do in the future to look forward to and rejoice, but we've got a very firm, clear, detailed account of what God did. Um, Abraham undoubtedly longed to know the specifics of God's promises far more intensely, and this is the best analogy I could come up with, than a Star Wars fan might long for details of the next film that would come up in the franchise. We, we have those details recorded in divinely inspired scripture. And personally, I'm kind of embarrassed at, you know, how much, you know, I take for granted when I consider, you know, what a treasure this would have been to Abraham and to the other saints in the Old Testament who longed eagerly to know in more detail what God meant by his promises and wanted to see more and more of those promises and longed to see those promises fulfilled. So we've got in Scripture a great treasure of incalculable, uh, incalculable truth. If we kind of step back and try to look at the big picture. Jesus is starting with a crowd that believed in him, and after he's done preaching with them, he's got an angry mob that's trying to kill him. Why? And I think the, the basic answer, we've already said this, but it's important to, to emphasize, is that this crowd is a, exemplifying a group that's particularly difficult to reach. Those that are self-assured of their standing with God. But who do not truly know God. They needed to see their need for Jesus. And um, Jesus has actually made progress by going from a group that has this superficial belief that's not adequate to at least a group that recognizes his claims and, and wants to kill him for them. Um, they're, they're at least closer. Um, they're not there, but um, you know, he, he's, he, he's shown them that that superficial belief that they had you know, 20 verses ago was not adequate. And I, I think this is, should give us encouragement you know, when, when sharing um, Christ 
even if it only results in anger and damaged relationships. Um, now, it's kind of hard for me to, to answer this because sharing my faith is not something I've ever been uh, particularly strong with, but it, it does seem clear when we uh, see that when we encounter a clear case of individuals that are relying on a, uh, a false assurance that's not consistent with genuine belief, uh, that we are to point that out. Now, that's difficult because we don't see the human heart as clearly as Christ did. And so I, I think a more humble approach than what we see in these verses may well be in order. But we are to confront false security uh, with clear teaching from the Scripture. Jesus isn't arguing with this crowd for the sake of arguing. He's trying to break down this false confidence that they have a good standing with God based on being sons of uh, Abraham. And so his, his argument, just kind of looking over this broadly, there's two points that Jesus tries to get across. First, they should recognize him as different from the other teachers because he's not seeking his glory. He's relying on the Father uh, to, to glorify him. Other teachers need to establish their own glory, uh, and that's a difference that they should recognize. They should see in Jesus a teacher that cannot be understood by human motivations, and they should see a message that could only come from God Himself. If they don't see that, it's because they do not know God, and that places their actions as opposite of those with the father they claim, Abraham who responded positively in faith to God's message to Abraham. What does Jesus mean uh, when he says, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And this is one of the most explicit and forceful claims that you'll find in the gospel to deity. They understood it. Uh, and there's no question that they understood it because they picked up rocks immediately afterwards. Um, Truly, truly is repeated for emphasis. It alerts the audience that something important is coming. Um, Jesus is, is clearly about to say something important. And this isn't merely a claim to preexistence. And um, if, if it was just a claim to preexistence, Jesus said, would have said, before Abraham was, I was. The I am is you know, kind of awkward grammatically unless you know the Old Testament and you know that that is uh, the name that God revealed in Exodus. Um, they, the crowd did at some point, I, th I think, seem to be at least open to Jesus' claims to divinity earlier in these chapters, and that's something that we, we talked about probably about three or four weeks ago now. But once Jesus has attacked the, their confidence in their ethnic identity, and once he's attacked their confidence in their works, they're unwilling to believe uh, in him further. They reject the, the claims that he's making to deity, um, where I, I think that they were open to accepting them previously. <coughs> um, J.C. Ryle, when he summarized this section, I think did a, a really good job. And so rather than try to do a, a lesser job, let me just uh, quote how J.C. Ryle closed uh, chapter 8 in, in his commentary. It is a wise remark of Pascal that our Lord's enemies, by their incessant uh, uh, travailing and interruption, both here and elsewhere, have supplied us unintentionally with a strong proof of the truth of his teaching. If our Lord's doctrine had only been delivered privately to a 
a, a prejudiced audience of kind and loving disciples, they would, have, they would not have come down to us with the same weight that they do now. But they were often proclaimed in the midst of bitter enemies, learned uh, scribes and Pharisees, who were ready to detect any flaw or any defect in the reasoning. That the enemies of Christ could never answer uh, or, or silence him is strong evidence that his doctrine was God's own truth. It was from heaven and not from men. So that brings us to the end of chapter 8, and I'm going to see what I can do on getting us started with uh, chapter 9. We, we can't get very far into it, but uh, chapter 9 is a, a fun chapter, and there's actually kind of something that I realized a little bit. Uh, ch chapter 9, um, it, it's going to be very different. I found chapter 7 and chapter 8 to be some of the most difficult material I've ever taught. The, there was, uh, the, the arguments were very dense. They took a long time to unpack. I think this was you know, dialogue that went back and forth for hours, and John has distilled it you know, in, into the densest form that he could, probably to save expensive paper in the first century. But he wanted to preserve as much of the flow of thought, and it, it takes a lot of work to unpack. John 9, it's the healing of a blind man, and it, it's much simpler. It, it flows easier. But what I was realizing, actually, just today as I was going through this, is that you, we, we've seen inadequate belief before, where, where Jesus you know, talks to crowds in temples. They in the temple back in chapter 2, they believe in him, but not in an adequate way. And then John brings forward a representative of that. Uh, Nicodemus. And I, I think we're going to see something similar here. We've got a, a crowd that's blind to God's truth. And in chapter 9, we're going to see a man who is born blind that's healed. And I, I think that man is kind of a representative of how someone does come to see the truth that you know, the crowds in chapter 7 and, and 8 aren't able to see. Jesus has just stated that he's the light of the world. This chapter illustrates with the, uh, illustrates that with the healing of a man born blind. Uh, D.A. Carson, I think, has a really nice statement that's worth reading. This chapter portrays what happens when the light shines. Some are made to see, like the man born blind, while others, who think they see, turn away, as it were, blinded by the light. So in one sense, this chapter is a continuation of the ideas of the previous chapter. In another, in an equally compelling sense, it's a very significant shift in John's gospel. Uh, Boyce has a kind of an interesting summary of this that it's long, but it's worth the time to, to think through. There are verses in the opening of, of John's gospel that provide an outline for the first 12 chapters of the book and are therefore important at this point in our study of the as the gospel enters a new section. These verses speak of the coming of the light into the world and say uh, of that light, he to which, um, or sorry, he came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. The coming of the light aptly describes the content of the first four chapters of John's gospel, that he came to his own, 
um, or sorry, he came to that which was his own, describes the next four chapters. The chapters that we're about to study, that would be 9 through 12, deal with all who received him. For in these chapters, we see that the emphasis is on Jesus calling out a people of his own in the midst of and in spite of growing hostility from the authorities in Jerusalem. This new section differs uh, from the one before it in that the old section, we see Christ being rejected by his own people. In this section, uh, Christ being rejected by his people begins to call out a new people. Uh, this is first exemplified by the story uh, of the call of Jesus to a man who had been born blind. The central truth in John 8 is the light testing human responsibility. In John 9, the central truth is God acting in sovereign grace after human responsibility had failed. If this is the true contrast between these two sections, as there is every reason uh, to believe, then the first and great lesson to be learned from chapter 9 is that man cannot frustrate God. Man's hatred cannot frustrate God. Man's sin cannot frustrate God. Rather, God accomplishes His purposes sovereignly, saving by grace uh, those whom He chooses to call to Himself. And so I am out of time, but we, we can see that there's going to be a significant transition in John. We're going to move from Jesus presenting the gospel to a, a people that will largely reject it to Jesus creating a group. And that's going to continue, although we won't get to it, with you know, Jesus preparing his disciples for his departure in the upper room discourse. And so with that, let me go ahead and close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I, I thank you for this gospel of John, and I thank you that you know, despite our persistent unbelief, you've broken down that unbelief, and you have shown us the light of who you are and what you've accomplished. I thank you that we don't have to look forward to promises that you've made that will come to pass someday in a way that is probably impossible to imagine, but that we can look back on what you have done in, in Jesus Christ. I pray that we would look back on that uh, and we would stand in awe uh, more and more of what you accomplished. In Jesus' name, amen.